Father, indeed we come before you once again, and we ask your blessing upon this crucial time in the life of your church, uh, this central part of our worship, the preaching and hearing of the Word of God. We ask, Father, that you would remove the distractions or help us overcome any distractions, Father, that we might be able to focus upon what is being said. And I pray that it would not be my voice that is heard but yours. I pray, Father, that your truth would ring out and resonate in the hearts of your people, that sinners might be called to repentance that those who love you might be spurned on to love and good deeds, that your church might glorify you, and that disciples might be made to follow you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, your Son. Amen. Well, beloved, for one more time, I ask you to turn to Luke 15, where after five Sundays, it is my intention to wrap up and put a bow on the parable of the prodigal son. It is Jesus' most famous parable. It is his richest and most vivid, his deepest. I think we are seeing that. I think we'll continue to see that this morning. Um, It is really something, but really it, it shouldn't be called the parable of the prodigal son. I hope by now you see how important the father is to this story And we're going to see even more so what we began seeing last week, how important the older son is to this story. And of course, they aren't real people. This is a story. It is a parable. Uh, It is meant to illustrate, for those hearing it, real salvific truth. That is, saving truth. Salvific. It is Jesus' response, remember, to the scribes and Pharisees. Verses 1 and 2 is where... They are grumbling. Why are they grumbling? Because the tax collectors and the sinners are coming to him to listen to him. And they grumbled, you know, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They can't fathom how a teacher or how any respectable Jew, for that matter, would uh, put up with such scum around him, such sinners around him. So early in the story, we saw what a sinner looks like. We saw what a sinner looks like. The prodigal son is that sinner, he is wasteful, he is uh, ungrateful, he is immoral, he is rebellious, he is selfish, he demanded his share of the estate while his father was still living, and then he took everything he had, he goes to this distant land, read a Gentile land, an unclean, defiled land in the Jewish mind. So he, he's voluntarily, you know, he has such enmity for his father that he is going to make himself unclean instead. And, and he goes there, and, and we remember he, he a famine comes, he's wasted all he has, he's starving to death, and it's only after he tries and fails to fix his own problem by handling and feeding pigs that he realizes his father's generosity is better. He comes to his senses, and that's where we saw what repentance looks like. He, he came to his senses, verse 17. Again, this guy is as repugnant as you could possibly be to a Jew, but, but he comes to repent. He comes to see how generous his father was. He remembers you know, his hired men have even more than enough bread, and here I am wanting the pig's food. Uh, so he, you know, there's no way he could ever return back and be received as a son. So if I can just go back and be a hired man, at least then I'm going to live. So the prodigal was humbled. 
He realizes he can't save himself. His only his only chance at life is the Father's grace, his Father's mercy. And so he goes back, and that's where we saw what forgiveness looks like because the Father, seeing his Son in the distance, runs to him. He doesn't wait for the Son to come to him and beg forgiveness and all that. He runs to his Son. He does not want to see his Son shamed for one more second, so he willingly bears the shame of his Son in his own body, and before his Son can even ask, Make me a hired man. His father is saying, get the best robe, which is his robe. He clothes them, clothes him in his robe. A picture of God clothing us with the righteousness of Christ. That, that beautiful picture. That's what that is a picture of. It's a beautiful picture. And this was forgiveness. And so the celebration was on. Uh, remember, the, what the two parables, the parable of the sheep before this, the parable of the lost coin earlier in chapter 15, there is, one, there is joy in heaven over what? Over even one sinner who repents. And so here, that is what we see here. But the parable wasn't over, and we saw last week what self-righteousness looks like. You see, there were two sinners being depicted in this parable. Not just one, but two the, the worldly sinner was exemplified by that younger son. But the, the older son is a sinner too. He is a picture of the grumbling scribes and Pharisees. He is dutiful. He, he looks the part. He's moral. But with no real relationship with his father. You know, he, he did nothing to intercede with his brother before. He had no regard uh, no, he put forth no effort to preserve the honor of his father. And now that he's heard his brother is back and that his father has received him back safe and sound, remember, wholly, completely received him back, he becomes angry and he's not willing to go into his father. He's not willing to go in to the party. He's self-righteous. He thinks himself above it all, better than that. He appears to have it all together on the outside, but he is filled with anger. He's filled with, with unhappiness of soul. He's filled with a, a lack of fulfillment. And we're not done seeing that, by the way, in, in what we have to finish up. But let's do finish up. And so let's read the parable one more time, and then we'll see how this all wraps up. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields, into his fields, to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And the father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. It is clear by now, by now I hope it's clear, that there are two sinful sons here, not one, like I said. The prodigal, again, is the worldly sinner. He's the one who's not very religious, if religious at all. He's... His his religion, if he is religious, his religion doesn't come anything to approaching what we would call today biblical Christianity or their you know faithful Judaism. Um, the older brother is the one who is superficially religious. He's the one who professes belief, or in this case, he he is a self righteous Jew. He is like the scribes and Pharisees. He's the one who does his best to look the part on the outside, who praises God with his lips, but what does Jesus say? You praise God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. That's what this older brother represents. And the father is clearly God in the person of Jesus Christ in this parable. That's who the father represents. His love for his sons and daughters overcomes their sins. God who who saves all who repent and believe in the Son, God who brings us into everlasting joyous celebration. And based on what we just read, the greatest thing about all of this is that God loves both kinds of sinners. He he loves and extends His grace to the religious, and he, he, He loves and extends His grace to the worldly. All kinds of sinners. He loves both kinds. Now, now, picking up where we left off, the party is on. The celebration has started. The older son finds out, and it's really, it's really his reaction to the news that is the impetus for this entire parable. He, he's angry. He's indignant that his father would extend grace to this ungrateful son, that his father would embrace and, and kiss and forgive this wicked son. And that's the Pharisees. That's the scribes. And the Pharisees, Jesus was showing them a picture of themselves. Remember, they're the ones hearing this parable. 
They're the ones Jesus is directing this at. They were indignant, weren't they? They were indignant that Jesus would associate with people they considered wicked. They had no concept of God's grace. You know, the cleansings, they were all about cleansings. You remember? We've seen this earlier in Luke. They were all about cleansings. They were all about looking the part. The cleansings they so emphasized were to show them how unclean they were before a holy, perfect God. But somehow there was a disconnect with that. You know, the sacrifices to them had become mere religious exercises. You know, they, they of course knew in their heads that the sacrifices were about atonement and forgiveness and God's justice and God's righteousness and God making right our wrongs. But they didn't know it in their hearts. I mean, that was, there was this disconnect there. To them, you had to be a good Jew. And they were the ones who got to determine what a good Jew looked like. So, you know, that's the good position for them to be in, in their opinion. You had to do, you had to work, you had to earn to please God. You had Really, you had to please them. That's what it amounts to. You had to please them. Because what does Jesus say to them? In Mark 7, you are nullifying the word of God for the sake of your traditions. They're, they're making themselves the authority. Keep the law. Uphold the traditions. Do the things you're supposed to do. Do the things the way they're supposed to be done. That was the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. The religion of the self-righteous who professed belief in God but didn't subject themselves to his lordship. And that was the older son. Yeah, he had no thought of grace, no praise for the Father's mercy. He wasn't willing to go into his father to go into the celebration. And he wasn't going to shame himself the way his father had shamefully forgiven his brother. And believe me, the, the, that's the, the scribes and Pharisees would have thought it a shameful thing for the father to, to just take this wicked son back. But he wasn't going to do that. And he was better than that, the older son was. And so the father came out and began pleading with him. He won't go into the party, so the father will come out and plead with him. And take note of that. The older son's will was determinedly to not go into the father, so the father takes the initiative to come out to him. The father took it upon himself to run to the prodigal son and to extend his grace and mercy to the prodigal son. And now he takes it upon himself to go to the older son and plead with him to come in. And this is so clearly, beloved, a picture of the call of the gospel. This is a vivid picture of Acts 17.30. God now declares that all men everywhere should repent. Whether you're a prodigal son or a dutiful son, you've got to repent. This is a picture. You know, the gospel is the only means by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name under heaven, Acts 4.12, by which men must be saved. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him, John 14.6. So here is the Father in this parable. God in Christ running to the prodigal Son who in humility... The prodigal was humiliated. He was humbled. Thankfully receives the grace of his father and is clothed in his righteousness and comes back into his house. But on the other hand, 
you've got the father coming out and pleading with this son who looks like he's done everything he's supposed to do for all this time. This dutiful son, and he's on the outside, and he refuses to come in. The one who appeared to be with his father all along, showing himself to reject the father's love, to reject the father's grace, to reject the father's mercy, to reject the father being honored, refusing to come into the house, refusing to join the celebration, He is being called, he is being pleaded with to come in, but he will not. Why? Because he doesn't feel he needs to repent. So he won't repent. He doesn't think he needs to humble himself. So he won't humble himself. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. The gospel command is for all men everywhere. It's for you, everyone in this room. It's for those in the nursery. It's for everyone outside of this room, whether they be in other churches this morning or whether they be wherever they are, in their homes, on vacation. It's for those everywhere. Everyone is called to repent and believe in the gospel, but not everyone will come in because not everyone can come in. And the older son showed himself to be what? To be dead in his trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Jesus is presenting the older son as an object lesson for the scribes and Pharisees. And this morning he is an object lesson for everyone here. And especially for those who will remain obstinate. Especially for those who remain in their self-righteousness. He's telling them, you have to come in. You have to humble yourselves. You have to repent. You have to realize the Father's house is the only place for salvation. The Father's house is the only place where there's an eternal celebration going on. John 6, Jesus is saying, You have to take all of me in. My flesh, my blood, my life. I'm your only way. John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. But, verse 64 of John 6, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. For this reason Jesus said to them that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And the scribes and Pharisees were not going to walk with Jesus. They claimed to love God. They claimed to serve God. They claimed to worship God. And on the outside, you would say they were doing that. They were doing all the things that appear to be right. They could listen to the words of Jesus with their physical ears, but they weren't about to take Jesus in. They weren't about to hear Him with their hearts with their spiritual ears because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were alienated from the life of God. They weren't about to walk with Jesus Christ because He wasn't the Christ to them. He wasn't going to be their Messiah. Like the older son, they weren't about to come in to where He was. Instead, they would persist in their religion. They would persist in their self-righteousness. 
That's why Jesus would later say to the Pharisees and the scribes, Matthew 23, Woe to you! <coughs> Excuse me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. Remember, they were the religious gatekeepers. They kind of told people what a good Jew looked like. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. He also says <coughs> that you make people twice a son of hell as yourself. The father was pleading with the older son. That word pleading is from the Greek word parakaleo. And that means nothing to you, but it's an important noun because it's from the Greek noun parakletos. And that is the word Jesus uses in John 14 to describe the Holy Spirit when he says that he's our helper. The point being, the father was trying to help his older son. He was coming outside to plead with him. He was coming outside to come alongside him to try to lead him to do the very thing he needed to do. The very thing he must do. He must come in. It's a picture, beloved, of God extending his gracious call even to those who snub their noses at him as hypocrites. He extends that same gracious call, by the way, to all hypocrites today. How, though, would... The older son responded. Look at verse 29. But he answered. The word but, by the way, signals it's bad news. Contrasting conjunction there. But he answered and said to his father, look. And let's stop right there. He responds very quickly. He doesn't take a beat. He doesn't take a sip of water. He doesn't take a breath. He doesn't take a moment to consider what the father is saying. And look what he says when he addresses him. He says, look. I mean, this is his father he's talking to. Look! Disrespectful. He doesn't use a title. He doesn't say father. Because at this point, what? They've had no real relationship. He may have been there all along, but they've had no real relationship. And he's making it official here. I'm not going to address you as father because the truth is I don't hold you in that respect. Look! Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. You know, beloved, that is what the self-righteous always, almost always do. You know, it's the first defense when confronted with their sin. They begin to recount all the things they've done. The self-righteous are very quick to recite their qualifications, to recite their religious resume, to deny that they are in the wrong. This particular older son says, I have never neglected a command of yours. I'm like, really? That's, pretty, that's a pretty audacious thing to say. I have never neglected a command of yours. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt there. The self-righteous, that's their attitude. You know, and they may say things that are kind of self-effacing, like, you know, I'm no, I'm not perfect. I know, you know, sometimes I make mistakes, but there's no real humility in that. There's no humility in that if it's, if it's apart from repentance. And you weren't going to get repentance here. They don't need to be forgiven. They're legalists because you sin in ways they don't. And yours are worse because they are not their sins. They're not going to repent of their own sins. And that's the older son. The very picture of legalistic self-righteousness. The very picture of pride. 
For so many years, I have been serving you. He actually uses the word for slave there. Doulos. Not the word for serving, from which was later changed to deacon in our English translations. Uh, he uses himself as a slave in a bad way. You know, Paul calls himself a, a doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ. That's a good thing. But he's a slave in a bad way here, he thinks. He's been slaving for his father. Why? Because he had to, not because he wanted to. He's been slaving for his father because that's what he was supposed to be doing to look like he honored him. But there was no joy in it. There was no joy in anything he was doing. The truth of the matter is, you know, the younger brother had been much the same, but the younger brother had at least made it public and acted on it. The younger son was outwardly sinful, whereas the older son continued to play his part and was inwardly sinful, but he was just as sinful. He was just as, if not more bitter, just as, if not more angry, just as, if not more hateful than the younger son had ever been. He never outwardly neglected a command of his father. He just resented on the inside having to do anything his father asked him to do in the first place. The sinisterness, the guile, the deceitfulness, the hypocrisy, the gall of the older son. He's not the bad guy. The father is the one who's wrong. Like the scribes and Pharisees' view of Jesus, it's the father who is in the wrong here. It's the father who has sinned. It's the father who's doing the unworthy things. It's the father who is violating the customs. It's the father who's not upholding traditions and conventions. It's the father who's making himself unclean. It's the father who has shamed himself. It's the father who has profaned himself. That's what the, the, the scribes and Pharisees were saying about Jesus. And then the older son takes it a step further, blaming the father. You have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. There's so much in that statement, by the way. He, he acts as if his life has been so terrible. As if his father has been so awful to him. As if his life has not been filled with access to his father's goodness and generosity. Poor guy. He's never been given a young goat to celebrate. Note, he says, with my friends. The, the, the father and the younger brother wouldn't be invited to his celebration. There's no real relationship there. He, he wouldn't have his shameful father and his shameful brother at his party. It would be him and it would be his friends. Read, people who think like him, people who he deems desirable. You see, now it's the older brother who wants the father dead. When the younger brother said, give me my share of the estate, and then he left town, it was as if he wanted his father dead. Now the older brother is making it clear he wants his father dead too. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, as if to say, I'm not your son anymore, he is. But when this son of yours came, he won't even call him his brother, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's not going to own up to his sin. He has to bring up the, the son's, the forgiven son's sins one more time. You killed the fattened calf for him. You wouldn't give me, the good son, a young goat. You give him, the disgraceful son, the fattened calf. I mean, he's dripping 
with enmity. He's dripping with hate. The mask is coming off. He's done playing nice. He's done pretending to love and honor his Father. And you see, beloved, that's why Jesus was saying all this. To expose the mask of the scribes and Pharisees that they were wearing. They were bitter because Jesus was receiving sinners. They wouldn't admit that they too needed to be received. They, that they too were sinners. They wouldn't come humbly to Him. They wouldn't confess. They, they wouldn't repent. They, their hatred of God is what's being exposed here. They, they professed to follow God, but they were rejecting God. The older son, beloved, is them. The older son is what rejecting God looks like. On the outside, it, it looked like the scribes and Pharisees had it all together. Yeah, you might today we might say he went to church. He was a church member. He 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 did the things he's supposed to do to, to look the part. But on the inside, anger. On the inside, unhappiness. On the inside, unfulfillment. They needed to be praised. He needed to be praised. You know, the older son, you've never given me this. He needed to be praised. He needed to be vindicated. He needed to be in control. He needed to be affirmed. He needed to be able to dictate terms. He needed to be superior to those he decided were inferior. He needed to... uh, No, he didn't need to repent. That was the older son. That was the scribes and Pharisees. On the inside, in the father's house, a great celebration of joy honoring the Father for His grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness on the outside, outside of true fellowship with the Father, grumbling and complaining and self-righteousness and pride and enmity and what the things that I saw in, in our lesson in First Peter 2 verse 1, envies, slanders, in the guise of religion. In the guise of faithfulness. But it's really the heaping of dishonor upon the Father. The heaping of dishonor ultimately upon God, upon Jesus Christ. Still, still, the Father's love here is so strong. Look at verse 31 again. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. After what the, the older son has just said, still he says, you've all, son, you've always, you know, and something not called in the English is that earlier in the parable, we see the, the more formal word for son in the Greek, it's, it's huias. But here the father says techna, as if my child, my boy, you've always been, with, it's, it's more tender, it's more endearing. The father, despite what his oldest son is saying to him, is taking his pleading to the next level. Such is his love, such is his compassion, that though the son has attacked him, he still desires the son. You know, the father knows there hasn't been a real relationship there. He's been available all this time. He's been there, but he knows there's not been a real relationship there. It's been superficial. And and the father, he's there. He's letting him know, I'm still here. You've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. We talk about dividing up the estate. It's all 
My, there's no division when it Your inheritance, to quote First Peter, is imperishable and undefiled and never fading away. You've always had me and I've always been available to you. But it will never be yours because of you. It will never be yours because you earned it. It will never be yours because you were better than your younger brother or that you were better than anybody else because the truth is you weren't and you aren't. You have to just come to me. You just have to come to me. That's what the Father's saying here. We had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to celebrate and rejoice, verse 32, because for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and has, was lost and has been found. We had to celebrate because that's what brings me joy, the Father says. This is what brings joy to the Father. This is what brings joy to heaven. When even one sinner repents, no matter what that sinner looks like, no matter what language that sinner speaks, no matter what kind of person that sinner has been, no matter what kind of sinner that person is now, when they come to Christ, He will accept him or her. No matter how obstinate, no matter how rebellious, no matter how self-righteous, no matter how outwardly good, no matter how outwardly bad, no matter how hateful, no matter how deceitful, no matter what, when even one sinner repents, there's joy in heaven. So Jesus will always receive sinners who come to Him and listen to Him. He will always do this. And there will always be celebration for the lost being found. There will always be celebration for the dead being raised to life. There will always be joy for the Father who saves and among those who are saved by Him, who are with Him, who are in His house, who are partakers of His grace, who are partakers of His mercy and compassion and forgiveness, who are clothed in His righteousness. You know what's weird about this parable though? What separates it from other parables, including the two preceding it in Luke 15, it's like the ending's cut off. We saw that the shepherd did find the lost sheep and celebrated with his friends. It's a good ending. We saw that the woman found the lost coin in her house and she was so happy she threw a party that probably cost more than the coin was worth. But here... Verse 32, that's the end of the parable. It's, it's cut off. Jesus doesn't give us the ending. It's as if he doesn't want to give the scribes and Pharisees the ending. Jesus does know how it ends. But it, it, you know, when I was growing up, it's almost like one of those old choose-your-own-adventure books. I loved those books growing up where you, you get to a page and you can go to page 34 for this or you can go to page 48 to do that. And it, you know, it depends. Jesus was leaving the ending of the story to the scribes and Pharisees who were listening. The fairy tale would be something like this. And the older son, you know, verse 33, let's make, a, let's make up a verse 33 here. The older son saw how much his father loved him and repented. He cried on his father's shoulder and his father practically carried him into the party where the celebration became much more joyous Finally, there was a real relationship and they all lived happily ever after. That's the fairy tale, but this is not a Disney movie, isn't it? That's not how it ended. 
The scribes and Pharisees actually chose for themselves another adventure. Their ending was that the older son heard what the father said and being so filled with anger toward him, and rightfully so in their, work, in their mind, had the father put to death for all to see. That's what they ended up deciding to do. The father in this parable, again, is Christ. God in Christ. And it's Jesus who they handed over to Pontius Pilate, who gave them over, gave him over, to be put on a cross and crucified, to bear the full fury of God the Father's wrath against all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe. That's how the parable ends. All who entrust themselves to Christ, all who repent. And of course, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. That's actually how it ends. They don't get to choose that part. They don't get to choose that part of the adventure. But Jesus rose from the dead on the third day because death can't hold God. Death couldn't hold the Son of God. He was victorious over sin. He was victorious over death. So that all who are in the party, all who are in His Father's house, all who are in Him might not perish but have everlasting life, everlasting joy, everlasting celebration, the separation for all time from our sins, and abundant life to the fullest forever. And the question as we close our study of this parable, five weeks long now, is who are you in this story? Maybe you're the younger son, the prodigal, still out in the world, still doing things the world says do that, but you're bringing shame upon yourself. And you're indulging in the desires of the flesh. Or maybe you are the younger son having come to your senses, repenting, coming back to the Father to be received completely, brought back into the Father's house as a son or a daughter? Or are you the older son, the older brother this morning? You're religious, you're dutiful, you're moral, but there's no real relationship there. I cannot implore you enough, beloved, professing Christian to consider yourself before the throne of God this morning. You are before the throne of God this morning. Many will come to Christ on that day and He will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Because there was no real relationship there. Simply saying and doing Christian church things is not sufficient. Christ didn't die so that you could look the part. Christ died to save sinners, to bring those He saves to His Father. And if you know all of this and still refuse Him, well then what does Hebrews 6.6 6 say? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. There's not another Messiah coming. You must come by Christ and you must come on His terms or you will not come at all. Jesus is the only one. So will you continue putting Him to death? Will you continue putting Him to open shame? Will you by looking the part on the outside but rejecting Him on the inside crucify to yourself the Son of God again and again and again and again? 
This man receives sinners. You must humble yourself. Do not exemplify in your own body what rejecting God looks like. Humble yourself. Repent. Come to Him. Come to your Father. Come to Jesus Christ. Come unto salvation. May that be the end of the parable for you. Let's pray. Father, may your word, your, you promise us in your word that it will not return void. And so I entrust you to use your word for grace or for judgment. Grace to those who hear and repent and believe. Judgment to those who continue to refuse you. Judgment for those for whom there is no real relationship. May we all come to our senses by your grace. I pray you will grant to us the gift of repentance so that we will come to our senses, come to the knowledge of the truth, and escape the snare of the devil. But come in to the party. Come in to the celebration. Come in to where you and your eternal blessings know no end. There is joy when even one sinner repents. Father, I pray that we might bring you joy. And I ask this in Jesus' name, our King and our Messiah. Amen.